0: Hello, my name is Mark Gibson, and you're listening to the podcast version of the Chagask Signpost Series, a weekly webinar that promotes and examines sustainability in Irish farming. This series is brought to you by Chagask in collaboration with Dairy Sustainability Ireland, the National Rural Network, and Food, Drink, Ireland, Skillnet. So all of the signs are pointing towards a low-nitrogen future in agriculture. The EU Green Deal and farm-to-fork strategies are seeking a reduction of up to 20% in fertiliser usage by 2030. So what does this mean for commercial dairy farming in Ireland? Well, there is a beacon of light shining from a research farm based in County Tipperary, and I'm delighted to be joined by Dr. James Humphreys, Principal Research Officer with Chagisk, who is going to talk to us today about commercial dairy farming without fertiliser nitrogen. Good morning, James. You're welcome to the series. morning, Mark. A, sec- a second time it's great to have you back yeah
1: almost and, a year uh, now
0: since the, the previous time yeah yeah where has that year gone and uh pass murphy good morning to you good morning how's all then at wexford today good nice sunny morning a
2: little bit cold but no it's good all good
0: great well thanks uh pat you're going to help us with questions afterwards um so james uh as I said, welcome, welcome back. You're going to be talking to us today about the the Holy Grail of uh, commercial dairy farming without uh, the use of artificial nitrogen. Is is this is it possible?
1: Well, it, yeah, it, it, it's possible, and I, I guess I'll I'll show the results um, of what we're finding. Um, I suppose the, the the key to this is is um, like the big question is why, why you do such a thing. And the key to it is the, the lower environmental impact, as you said, the, the Green Deal. But it can, I suppose the main motivating factors are, when we look at nitrogen, it's a source of nitrate leaching, source of nitrous oxide, which is a, a very potent greenhouse gas. comes around a third of emissions from farms. And it's um, also source of ammonia, which is subject to international um, agreements for mitigation reduction so there, there are there are the motivations for it um and of course the challenge looking at 2030 particularly in terms of greenhouse gas emissions the likely targets that are there and how we can reduce those emissions on farms without impacting on um, productivity and profitability mm-hmm. and if you look at the various options say you could cut numbers for example which will immediately impact on your production and your profit. Or you could look at say nitrogen fertilizer and using clover and and things like that to replace it and uh maintaining your output in that way. And you you have proven that this can be done
0: in in Solahead. Uh you've been working on this for quite a number of years now and uh you're showing really positive results uh around clover. Um what what are the the limiting factors would you say, James in terms of the uptake of clover? Uh, across uh, dairy farms in Ireland or indeed uh,
1: farms? I suppose there's two elements to that. One is kind of a lot of the work we've done can show that Clover can work, not only in Salahead, but also in Clannic Guilty Moorpark. And um, the, 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 the economic benefits are maybe not as clear cut. Maybe they're becoming more clear cut now. I think a main driver for this will be more environmental than economics. And the second thing, so that, it, you know, if you had very clear economic vantage, clover then becomes very attractive. The other aspect is, is the management. And if we have a very well organized system of grassland management based on fertilizer nitrogen, which is very cost-effective, you know, the, the incentive for a farmer to change practices are, are not there. You know what I mean? If you've been running a thing very well for many years, why would you uh, change? it's a bit like saying if you're used to driving a petrol or diesel car why would you take on an electric car um mm-hmm. because it requires a change in how you go about your business charging the thing up um it may have some limitations in terms of uh, the distance you can travel and I, I think you have a similar problem when you compare a clover type system to a nitrogen fertilizer based system yeah, yeah. um so the motivations it, for taking on an electric car would be some somewhat similar if 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 the analogy makes any sense.
0: I, I think that's a really good analogy. I mean there's a, a change required or a shift in behavior required um, that needs and an Pat, I'm sure you can you'll be able to tell us all about that with your electric car at some stage, your your experience. Maybe we can dedicate a, a session to that one at some point. For um, a
2: while, I haven't had to worry about, uh, 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 about range uh, uh, anxiety because I haven't got very far, but maybe that'll come too.
0: I can picture a, a Jeremy Clarkson style show on, on Pat's experience with his, his electric car. Well, James, look, we better get stuck into the presentation. Okay.
1: Uh, good morning, everybody. Um, as Mark said, the title is uh, Commercial Dairy Farming Without Fertiliser Nitrogen," and there's a question, Mark. And it's, a, I suppose, it's a somewhat pr- provocative title, and and the question mark, as as Mark already said, is um, why 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 you do such a thing, and it's down mainly mainly motivated by um, trying to improve uh, the environmental performance of of the farm. So if we look at uh, fertilizer nitrogen recommendations um, over the years, we see if we if we go back to the early 1990s when I started working with Chagas. Um, the recommendations range between 250 uh, kilos per hectare, uh, two and a half cows per hectare coming from Johnson Castle, and up to um, 380 being recommended um, by Moore Park. And um, as some of the subsequent work we did, uh, Kay O'Connell's PhD. thesis was to show that some of this difference in recommendations was down to differences in soil type and where the experiments were conducted, Johnson Castle having much higher background release of nitrogen than, than Moore Park and Park with its light sandier soils, very responsive to uh, nitrogen fertilizer in input in terms of grass growth. Of course, then during the mid 2000s, 2006, we had the introduction of the nitrates directive. Fertilizer used in is kind of limited to between 250 and 280 kilos of nitrogen per hectare. And there has been a lot of improvements in fertilizer management in the intervening period in terms of uh, rates and dates of fertilizer nitrogen application, how we manage slurry, how we integrate slurry into the system. And the current recommendations are for between 150 and 250 kilos nitrogen per hectare. And this depends to a large extent on on the inclusion of clover in the swards. The lower rates being recommended where there's there's plenty of clover in the sward. What we've been doing at Silahead, we've been looking at clover now for, for nearly 20 years. We're now down to a situation in 2020 where we use around just less than 100 kilos of nitrogen per hectare, stocked to two and a half cows per hectare across the farm. And our our target is to go lower than that. And our motivation for this is uh, two projects. One of them is funded by the Department of Agriculture called Lowering the Carbon and Ammonia Footprints of Pasture-Based Dairy Production. And that's really particularly the carbon footprint we're, we're aiming at how low can we go in terms of lowering our emissions. And the second project then is Chagas Funding, developing a blueprint for low or zero nitrogen fertilizer input for low emissions pasture-based dairy farming. And of course, both of these projects are integrated and overlapped to some extent. If we look at um, nitrogen fertilizer use since the 1930s, we can see that there was very little nitrogen fertilizer used in Ireland prior to World War II. And and this is because it wasn't um, really available it was only after World War Two, when when oil became cheap and freely available, um, that we see a big increase in manufacturing nitrogen fertilizer internationally. Um, the manufacture is very of nitrogen fertilizer is very in, energy intensive, and this coincided with um, a large inc- increase in the in the global population. And if we take the time frame encompassed by this slide here, going from 1930 to 2020. The world population quadrupled in this period, going from around 2 billion to, to almost 8 billion. And the big concern, particularly when I was young, when I was not much older than the, the child there in, in, in that picture, during the late 60s, early 70s, was, was this concern with the rapidly growing world population, which was growing very rapidly at the time. And the concern was how we'd feed the planet. And not only in Ireland, but we see internationally a big increase in nitrogen fertilizer use. And when people think about the things that have sustained um, this, this very rapidly growing population that we've seen, um, it, it, nitrogen fertilizer has been a key player in that people often think about sanitation, better medications, antibiotics, and these kinds of things. But nitrogen fertilizer has been a key driver in, in, in feeding a growing world population. And a lot of the concerns there were about mass starvation really have been um, uh, alleviated in that um, we've seen a a huge increase in global population without actually the food security has declined to very low levels. Um, Less than 10% of the world's population now would be uh, at risk compared to um, more than 50% in, in the 1960s. So we've seen a very much improved situation in terms of uh, global food security. And nitrogen fertilizer has been a, a key driver of that. And of course, when you start talking about cutting nitrogen fertilizer use, you have to be very conscious of, of these changes. If we look within the European context, um, like we, we all forget that World War II was, was one of the motivating factors for that was uh, in Japan and, and Germany, uh, concern about how they were going to feed their populations. And um, acquiring more land was, was was part of their expansion agenda at the time. And during the war, German farmers um, or the German government paid French, Dutch, Belgian farmers to increase their food production. Food security was a big problem in, in Germany. Likewise, in the United Kingdom, uh, the governments there paid their farmers to increase their, their production. And really, just those payments to farmers are, were, are the basis for what our current cap or common agricultural policy. Didn't have much impact in Ireland until we joined the EC in uh, 1972. And it's following the joining the EC that we see a huge increase in nitrogen fertiliser use in Ireland. Until we had the introduction of the milk quota in the early, in 1984, which we see some bit of a tailing off in fertiliser use after that, because there was excessive production, milk production in Europe. So there was a introduction of the milk quota. We still had an increase in, um, Livestock numbers in Ireland are primarily beef and sheep subsequent to the introduction of the, of the milk quota. Um, this is a period of, uh, where we couple payments for beef and sheep production, the McSharry years. It's been up until the late 90s. Franz Fischler, and then we see a reduction in fertiliser nitrogen use, which coincides with this whole policy of uh, decoupling and extensification. So fertiliser nitrogen um, has been strongly influenced by policy uh, decisions. So there's a substantial reduction there between around 1998 and uh, 2011. And since then, we've seen an increase in fertilizer use, as well, somewhat driven by the abolition of the milk quota and increasing dairy cow numbers. And um, now we're moving into a new policy area, new policy agenda, um, the Green Deal, which one of the 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 aspects of that is a 20% reduction in fertiliser nitrogen use, as Mark has already outlined, which again is one of the motivating factors for this work. I suppose the other thing is if we look at uh, greenhouse gas emissions per capita in selected European countries, you see the one country uh, immediately stands out and that's Ireland. And uh, we stand out because we've very high emissions from agriculture we look at this from agriculture relative to other sources, if we compare across European countries, Ireland has a very distinctive uh, emissions profile. And the second thing that this slide shows us is that we have high emissions per capita. And on a global basis, global scale, we have very high emissions um, per person compared to many other countries. And say so if we compare ourselves to our near neighbors in the United Kingdom, for example, versus uh, 13.2 in Ireland uh, much lower emissions. Denmark with a similar size country and population also fair dependence on agriculture substantially lower emissions and then if we look at the frugal Swedes with their very very low emissions uh, so compared to Ireland so we are in the spotlight to some extent in this country in terms of uh, meeting our emissions reductions target and agriculture in particular because of the large contribution that it makes to our, our emissions. If we look at our emissions profile on a intensive dairy farm, this is a selection of intensive dairy farms, high stocking rate, high fertiliser nitrogen use, around carbon footprint of 1.05 um, kilos of carbon dioxide equivalents to per litre of milk, large portion of that coming from enteric fermentation, methane, biogenic methane, Uh, Nitrogen fertilizer is also a big player, concentrates, and um, excreta. And if we look at, say, the things that we can do on a farm, we can improve this entire fermentation by improving our EBI, better uh, production, lifetime production from dairy cows, lower replacement rates, in terms of slurry management, uh, low emission slurry spreading. But a large amount of the manure produced on pasture-based dairy systems is outdoor, so the less doesn't really come into it. And really I suppose the point of this dividing line is that everything to the left of this line depends on, on to the right of this line depends on livestock numbers, and we need dairy cows to produce milk, and we need replacements to replace those dairy cows. And then they, we really can work on this end of this, this side, on the, the left-hand side, particularly in nitrogen fertiliser use, where we can use different techniques to to lower our fertilizer nitrogen input or lower emissions from fertilizer through use of uh, protected urea, for example, or the use of clover. So, as I said, these are the two, two projects that we're working on um, this is based on earlier work that's, that's published, work conducted between 2000 and 2010. And what I'm gonna talk about today is, is work we've done since 2010. But prior to 2010, we were comparing clover-based and nitrogen fertilizer-based grassland for dairy production. What we found was no difference in profitability, as we were saying to Mark already. And this, of course, isn't a very strong incentive to adopt the system. Of course, this was in the context at the time of uh, milk quota situation and the REP scheme, the Rural Environmental Protection Scheme. What we did find, even though the focus of our work at the time was primarily on water quality and lowering nitrate leaching losses, but we also found that, it, that we got substantially lower greenhouse gas emissions, 16%. And that was really without focusing too much on that question. It was more by accident than, than by design. So the current work that we're looking at is to seeing to what extent can we go beyond this 16% reduction? Now, if we look at uh, fertilizer nitrogen response curves, and I suppose the reason I'm leading into this is that... Um, a big focus of our work is on nitrogen fertilizer as a means of uh, cutting our emissions. Look, this is our response curve. We normally find that um, we grow maybe around six tons of grass at uh, with no nitrogen at all ahead, going up to fifteen tons with two hundred eighty kilos, three hundred kilos of nitrogen per hectare. And what's happening below here is that we're we're getting the six tons um, from background release of nitrogen. This is Nitrogen that's being turned over in the soil, and all soils have a capacity to release a certain amount of nitrogen over the course of the year. And of course, I talked about differences in recommendations in the, in the past, and this is largely down to different soils and their capacity to release this background nitrogen. At least this is the situation for Solahed, and we looked in when we apply nitrogen fertilizer. This really gives us this response that we see this increasing uh, production that we get from uh, nitrogen fertilizer input. So that's a nitrogen fertilizer response curve. If we didn't introduce white clover into the system, um, we get a different type of response curve uh, intersecting here up at around 15 tons per hectare. Um, This is based on system scale studies. These are full system scales with with around 24 cows per system. So the full system scale seven years using 280, one years with, with, with 250 kilos of nitrogen per hectare this system here, which is our more or less standard system, Clover based system, with 110 kilos nitrogen per hectare. with 10 years of data since 2010. And then the zero nitrogen system that we've been looking at more in recent times. Uh, we have three years of data on that. So this is a little bit more uncertain about this system. But we look at the difference between these two lines. Really, it's down to biological nitrogen fixation. And this graph tells us a, a number of things that, as we like our clover contents here are around 10%, clover contents here of the swards are 22% or so, and the clover contents that we're looking at in, on these swards are in excess of 25%. So as we increase our fertilizer nitrogen input, our clover contents go down, and our biological nitrogen fixation goes down, or if we reduce our fertilizer nitrogen input, we get an increase in biological nitrogen fixation, around 150 kilos in this case, and where we go right down, we can get up to in excess of 200 kilos of nitrogen per hectare being fixed, which of course is a key driver of productivity. And that's why this line is much flatter than the line where there's no clover. And of course, the big key to this whole thing is that when we exchange, or if we reduce nitrogen fertilizer input and replace it using biological nitrogen fixation, we get no nitrous oxide or ammonia emissions associated with it. So that gives us a big potential to lower our, our, our greenhouse gas and ammonia emissions because nitrous oxide is a very potent greenhouse gas. Um, even though we lose relatively small amounts of it, it has a very high global warming potential, and, and, and in that way, it has a big impact on emissions from a farm. I think when you when you look at data like this, you often like to look for for confirming data, but this this is a uh, Again, the response curve from grass clover swords from work conducted uh, at plot scale in Moor Park, by Daniel Enriquez Zildago who did his his, his PhD thesis with uh, Deirdre Hennessy, but you can see the response curve uh, is very similar to what we're seeing in in Salahead, which kind of gives us confidence. So I talked about targeting systems or designing systems where we're actively seeking to lower our emissions. So What can we do? We can improve soil fertility, which is, which is key in terms of lime use, P and K, use of protected urea. will head to lower emissions compared to, say, can, for example. Um, we'll lower uh, ammonia emissions compared to straight urea. If we integrate white and red clover into the swards, as I said already, where we're relying on biological nitrogen fixation, where we can take nitrogen out of the system and replace it with biological nitrogen fixation which takes place in the, the root nodules here. Um, that will help to lower emissions, improving EBI, low emissions slurry spreading, as I said already. So how does, does this impact on, um, on, our, on, on our systems? And as I said, these are mainly run as, at uh, systems with 24 cows per system. And what I've done for this purpose for comparison is to scale it up to a uh, 50-hectare farm and, and to look at uh, the impact in that regard, including profitability. So if we take three, three stocking rates, these are the kind of stocking rates we can sustain with the different inputs, clover-based system. Uh, both, both of these systems are clover-based systems. In this case, we've optimized everything, say in terms of the EBI of the herd. So we've picked our best cross each lactation number and and by blocking the cows and calving data and lactation number, we um, put our best cows across each lactation uh, onto our low carbon herd, as we call it. So they, these two herds are similar EBI. EBI. This is higher EBI, 50-hectare farm. This is the number of cows. If we look at our emissions per litre. Um, you can see the emissions reductions that, that we're getting from the systems. Going from 0.88 here down to 0.69. If we include sequestration, which is often included in the models, we can see we're getting even bigger reductions. Even though I'm, I'm hesitant to include these figures because we've been measuring uh, soil carbon at head for, for nearly 20 years now, going back to 2001. And what we found is that we were storing a huge amount of carbon in the soil in head, around 200 tonnes per hectare in the top 90 centimetres. What we haven't found is evidence of any uh, large increase in that over this period in terms of uh, sequestering additional carbon. And I suppose looking for the sequestration, it's, it's probably taking place, but it's probably taking place at a level that's, that's difficult to detect against the background of the huge amount of carbon that's in the soil already. And I suppose it's a bit like looking for um, a pot of gold at the end of a rainbow. It's a it's, uh, very difficult to find, probably because it's relatively low. So these are the emissions per liter of milk, which is one metric you can use and has its benefits in terms of say, the marketability of products. Obviously, if we have a much lower emissions here, it's more, attra- it's more attractive from a consumer's point of view if you want to buy a product with a lower emissions profile. If it, another way of looking at is per, per tons of carbon per hectare, and we can see uh, the reduction that we're getting in that regard. I suppose the interesting thing here is that each hectare of soil, or, or each hectare of the farm in soil had, is giving us the emissions that are almost equivalent to um, the emissions per capita in Ireland that I, that I showed already. If we look at ammonia emissions, um, we can see also a reduction, substantial reduction in ammonia emissions. When we take fertilizer nitrogen out of the system, uh, fertilizer nitrogen being an important source of ammonia emissions. And if we look at this relative, say, to the national average, as I put forward already, of 1.05, we can see um, even with our intensive system, we're getting a reduction, but up to 34% reduction um, as we move across to the low emissions, the low carbon system, low fertilizer nitrogen, high EBI, low emissions slurry spreading, where we're optimizing everything in terms of aiming for low emissions. We also looked at the net margin and, and we're surprised to see that um we had an increase increasing net margin with a lower fertilizer nitrogen input. So when we're optimizing everything, we, we can get higher production or higher profitability. And just to look at that in more detail, so the same scenarios as I laid out already, we look at milk sales, they decline with um cow numbers with stocking rate, but compensated to some extent by higher output from our higher EBI cows. We look at our total sales, Um, they are lower, but then if we take into account our variable costs, we see um, substantially lower variable costs. Fertilizer nitrogen makes up a large part of that, accounting for around 12,000. We also get other reductions in terms of say, if you lower cow numbers, you make less silage, you have less slurry to handle, these type of costs. With the Clover system, we've a higher reseeding cost. We've doubled the rate of reseeding compared to our, essentially our non-Clover system over here. So we've factored that in. And then if we look at our fixed costs here, you can see similar enough fixed costs. What's included in this fixed cost is the labor cost based on 27 hours per cow at 15 euro per hour. So there's a labor cost of around uh, 50,000 in each of these systems. Give an increasing net margin with the lower fertilizer nitrogen input. So it's quite competitive. Quite favorable in terms of uh, net margin. If we factor in the 50,000 paid out in labor, you're talking about um, family farm, potential family farm income up between 120 and 130,000 on a 50-hectare farm. It's a very attractive proposition. And then as I've shown already, the increasing net margin with a, with a lower input system. I think that's a very positive story. And I, I suppose the question that comes up is, is how has it impacted on our carbon and ammonia footprints? And I think one of the ways to examine that is to look at what's happening on the farm at Salahead as a whole. And if we go back to, to, to pre-quota times, say back to 2011, 2013, at the time we had 90 cows on the farm. We have 130 acre farm around 50, 52 hectares. Half the farm at the time was under clover, receiving low rates of nitrogen and the other half was uh, an intensive system, getting 280 kilos of nitrogen per hectare. We were rearing our own heifers on the farm, um, producing just less than 40,000 kilos of milk solids per year off the the farm. With a carbon footprint of 9.7 tons per hectare and 0.82 kilos uh, per liter of milk. And our ammonia emissions are there then in, in 2015, we increased cow numbers. And in 16, we had uh, around 125 cows on the farm. We upped the fertilizer and nitrogen use. Um, stocking rate of 3.9 cows, 2.39 cows per hectare. And we increased our milk production. And that was after consultation with the with Tip Coop who owned the farm. Prior to the abolition of the milk quota, they they asked us to to increase our milk output from the farm by fifty percent in line with Food Harvest 2020, and to see um, how that could be done. And in our case, it involved um, changing around our housing system, bigger bulk tank, we bought a new milking machine, and also we started contract rearing out uh, the replacement to heifers. Uh, so that gave us a scope to increase the cow numbers to 125. That obviously had an impact on our carbon footprint per hectare and per liter. And also our, our ammonia emissions. And then in 2017, we, we, we started on the current work looking at actively trying to lower the emissions on the farm. And you can see the changes that have taken place. We're down to around 100 kilos of nitrogen per hectare across the farm. You can see the stocking rates and the milk output. And you can see the reductions that have taken place that coincide with, with lower fertilizer nitrogen use. And whereas we have not lowered our emissions per hectare relative to our baseline here we have in terms of per liter of milk and i think there needs to be small bit of caution used in terms of um metrics used for assessing farms carbon footprint per liter of milk is often the metric that's used you can actually reduce your emissions per liter of milk without impacting on your carbon footprint per hectare and I suppose this, this brings us on to the current system or the direction of travel. That's all ahead where we're, if we move in this direction. This will actually get us back to where we, we started. Um, also lower emissions per, per liter of milk and, and lower ammonia emissions compared to our baseline. And that's having increased the milk production on the farm by 50%. So you, that, that really has to be an important consideration in this we're talking about, having increased milk production by 50%. Maintaining similar level of emissions to pre that expansion, um, which is a, a very positive achievement. And I suppose, in terms of meeting our targets for, for 2030, um, the type of practices that um, we're employing on the farm uh, uh, will we'll have an important role in, in achieving those 2030 targets. Now, clover is a key component of what we're doing. And the question always comes up how do we optimally manage clover swords? particularly for for low emissions dairy farming. And low fertilizer nitrogen input is key. The less nitrogen fertilizer we put on, the more nitrogen we fix. Because when you start putting on high nitrogen, it drives on grass production, which often competes with the clover in terms of space in the sward. And it also tends to uh, prevent nodulation and nitrogen fixation in in the roots of the clover. So the less nitrogen fertilizer we use, the more fixation we get, and the less ammonia emissions we'll get and lower nitrous oxide emissions, as I've said already. So low fertilizer nitrogen input is key. And managing that is, uh, we're working on um, decision support rules around that because you need to have a a flexible approach to this, but minimizing it is is key. Tight grazing is also very important. And if we look at our productivity on the farm prior to 2010 and subsequent to that, when we did some work between 07 and 09 on on post-grazing height, Tide grazing has a very big impact on um, clover productivity. And the tighter you can graze your sward, the more productive it will be. It it almost sounds like a contradiction in terms, but less nitrogen, the better. The tighter you graze it, the more productive it will be. Soil pH is very important. Nitrogen fixation is a biological process. So if you don't have your soil pH in in good order, um, you won't get the levels of fixation that you need. And also we think regular applications in P and K is very important, particularly on farms that are deficient in P and K. And that's because when we look at the root volume of uh, clover in the soil, it only accounts for maybe 12 to 15% of total root volume compared to 80% to 85% from grass swards, the grass component of the sward. We often think about competition between grass and clover in terms of competition for light, but there's also competition going on beneath the ground. And the grass is extremely competitive from that point of view. So regular applications of P and K um, are important to assist the clover. Of course, this argument ties in as well with the low nitrogen input. When you lower the nitrogen input, you're also favoring the clover because it has this capacity to supply its own source of nitrogen. What we found is increasing to six-week rotations in the autumn. Tight grazing is important during the year. As you move into the autumn, you can start extending out your rotation. And this helps to build clover stolon in the run-up to the winter. Like the main clover, clover is most dominant in the sward during the summer. You get a big increase in the clover content, but also in the amount of stolon mass that's, that's growing at the base of the sward. Because clover grows very much, if you wanted a good analogy, it's like ivy growing up a wall. It has these stolons, which are the, like the stem of the ivy that grows up the wall. These grow along the surface of the ground. And... Uh, Sending up leaves at at intervals. And having a good mass of stolon is important for this long-term survival of the clover. And the, it's it's most at risk at loss over the winter period. And with bad management, we've measured where with poor management, poor management decisions, we could lose maybe 75-80% of the stolon mass over the winter period, um, which of course puts you in a very bad position then in the following spring. What we found is low covers over the winter has a very positive impact on on stolen survival by allowing more light down to the base of the sward over the winter, even though this recommendation then conflicts with the objective of carrying high covers over the winter for early spring grazing. So this is the recommendation that would would contradict or conflict with current grassland management practices. And it's, it's something that needs to be changed and it's something that needs to be assessed in terms of the impact of that. Reseeding is important, um, more for the clover than for, for perennial ryegrass in our case. Uh, regular reseeding we see is important, and we often get questions about managing clover on wet soils, and soil ahead is a relatively wet farm. Of course, we've done an awful lot of drainage over the years, and we do a certain amount every year, maybe spending four or 5000 per year on improving our, our drainage, and that's something that I would say, encourage farmers very strongly that... Uh, if you're on a wet farm, you really need to invest in drainage, and big improvements can be made at relatively low cost. And in terms of the capital investment on a farm, you'll you'll never regret a well-designed drainage system. And I say well-designed because you really need to get in experts uh, that know what they're talking about in terms of how to optimally in in, in put in your drainage system. You know, the people in Moorpark that that can assist with that. And then uh, <clears throat> some other things that we found is is often where you have very productive clover swords, you get a buildup of nitrogen in the sward over time, a buildup of nitrogen in the soil. This tends to favor the grass component of the sward, And this can be managed by taking off a heavy cut of silage. If you take off five or six tons of dry matter per hectare, you're taking off around 150 to um, 180 kilos of nitrogen per hectare. And mining out that nitrogen, taking it away, putting it in the silage pit, that then leaves the clover, if the clover is under pressure, it leaves the clover in an environment that's more favorable to its expansion. So there are techniques that we can use to maintain the productivity and increase the productivity over swards, swords. And, and that's something that we, we'll continue to work on. So in terms of uh, wrapping up, um, when we look at um, dairy systems across Europe, and it's something I've been doing now for a long time, for 20 years, different projects, we find that we compare very well in terms of our many metrics, in terms of environmental performance of our dairy farms, where we tend to fall down relative to other European countries is is in the use of nitrogen fertilizer. And that's because in other European countries, they've moved away from grassland and often have maize as a major component of their farming systems. And you can grow huge yields of maize with very relatively low nitrogen inputs compared to grassland. You grow 15 to 20 tons of maize, 150 kilos of nitrogen compared to say, if we want to grow 15 or 16 tons of grass in Ireland, you need to use a maximum 280 kilos of nitrogen per hectare to, to, to get close to that. However, if we start looking away from nitrogen, in our case, we have a natural advantage in being able to harness uh, biological nitrogen fixation into our system. And that's true to use the clover. So when we can integrate it into our swards, which is our main source of feed, we can, we can do that. We have the climate that suits doing that. And if you say compare us to a Dutch system, for example, reliant on maize, it's much more difficult to integrate uh, nitrogen fixation into your rotation. You'd have to include it in a kind of a tillage rotation, say we can do it much more effectively in, 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 a, in a grass ward. Well, we've been finding it's, it's all ahead. We can have a high stock system with low environmental footprints. We have a very low impact on water quality. Uh, we can lower our greenhouse gas emissions by around 30, 35 or 5%, as I've shown already. Also, we can lower our ammonia emissions. And it's also an economically competitive system. So whereas the economic argument for Clover may not have been as strong in the past, I think would improve productivity with better management and also the changing uh, conditions in terms of... Uh, requirements for environmental performance, I think it becomes much more, much more attractive system. And Cloverless and uh, protected urea are, are the things that we can use to lower our emissions in terms of meeting our 2030 targets. If we look beyond 2030 targets and say to 2050 and trying to achieve net zero emissions, I think this, is, this really is an enormous challenge. And I think I spoke earlier about how policy can impact on our decisions in terms of nitrogen fertiliser use and livestock numbers and everything else but indirectly on nitrogen fertiliser use I think we have to be very clear about the policy decisions that are made now uh, looking forward to 2050 because I think um, uh, offsetting is going to be very important in terms of um, increasing forestry in terms of offsetting uh, our emissions from agriculture and this I suppose the, the, the gut reaction thing would be to say, well, we cut emissions from agriculture by cutting our production or by, and this might necessarily be the best way forward. Um, and I, I think there's a strong argument for actually intensifying the, the production system along the lines that I'm talking about here in Salahead, making more land then available for, for offsetting in terms of forestry. And we have to be very careful because food production is an important business in Ireland and, and, uh, we have to be careful not to kill the golden goose. Um, also, I think if we can work on lowering our emissions from food production, um, food production with, with low environmental footprints, are, there's good marketing opportunities for that. So that's my uh, presentation, Mark. I'll, I'll hand back to you now in terms of the, the questions. I guess, uh,
0: uh, thank you, James. Uh, Excellent presentation, and really, some uh, you've you've uh, triggered a lot of uh, really good questions here from our, our audience. And a special welcome to our our people from with uh, people from Dundalk to Dusseldorf tuned in this morning, James. You'll be delighted to hear. So a lot of lot of interest in your, your presentation this morning. Um, just to, to, from my own perspective, James, you mentioned the the carbon sequestration, and uh, what I'm hearing from you is an air of caution. Around the uh, our our maybe I would say reliance on on additional carbon
1: being sequestered by our soils. Am I am I hearing that correctly? Well, I I can only speak about Salahed because Mm -hmm. because my experience is limited to that. I think we set out with great enthusiasm twenty years ago to show that uh, that we could offset some of our emissions from the farm um, by looking at our sequestration in the soil we knew that we had very high levels in the soil it's, it's just the nature of the soil and solid ahead. and what we found I suppose um, that, um, that there isn't you know we're not finding a large amount of sequestration taking place and I suppose when you look at a, a dairy system a grassland based dairy system where you're cultivating where there's reseeding going on we know that when you reseed that you lose carbon out of the system you get a uh, mineralization of the carbon that releases carbon dioxide. And what we found is over the following years, we're actually sequestering back that carbon. So maybe after 10 years, we're back to square one in terms of uh, our total carbon balance in the soil. So what we are happy to say is that in terms of the system, in terms of the soil, that, or the system that we're running, that we're carbon neutral from a soil point of view, we're neither losing carbon from the system or sequestering carbon. Bearing in mind, we're reseeding. We have been draining. Question often comes up: Are we losing carbon when we're draining? We're not finding that. But we've we finished the project. We two PhDs have worked on the question of drainage and soil carbon and what we're our, our greenhouse gas emissions. And what we found is that by draining, we lower our nitrous oxide emissions because nitrous oxide is emissions are often dependent on um, wetness. The wetter the soil, the greater the emissions. So by draining, we can lower our carbon footprint by lowering nitrous oxide emissions. So I've kind of deviated a small bit from your question, but the short answer is um, we're not finding uh, a lot of sequestration. And as I said in the talk, it's a bit like uh, looking for the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. It's it's Mm -hmm. very nice to find it, but it's very hard to find it.
0: Just just before we go to questions, um, and I'm conscious time is ticking on, but just to make people aware that Chagas does offer through the Connected Programme training uh, to professionals around the whole area of land drainage because we know that there are so many different solutions to different types of drainage issues so uh, our colleague Pat Tuhi leads that and uh, it is an excellent uh, course which should be uh, delivered this or sorry next year Uh, we're not in a position uh, to to deliver this year um, Pass some excellent questions coming through there. I think we'll, yep. we'll try and get Lying through in. as many of them as possible because there's of course, quite a lot coming through so so um, I, if James you could try and uh, provide uh, as concise an answer as possible I, it would be nice to try and get us through as many as we can.
2: Okay, I suppose first one we've had a couple of sessions on multi-species swords and the question in there, what's the potential for herb species, plantain, chicory for carbon sequestration and I suppose within your own uh, drive to zero nitrogen has a potential role?
1: I think it, uh, the way we've looked at it is um, in terms of nitrogen fixation. And if we're looking at other species that we integrate, we really want to integrate more nitrogen fixing species rather than other herb species. I think there are, as I said before, there is work going on on this. And I'd be more inclined to wait and see What's coming out of this work before we'd uh, go in that direction? Like, I have the impression, I think that chicory doesn't last very long in swords. Um so it doesn't seem that promising. Um, Plantain may have more to offer, but from our point of view, I, as I said, there's enough work going on without us looking at it. And from a zero nitrogen point of view, like I've, I've read papers that that show that that there may be some advantages in a low nitrogen situation that. The, that uh, chicory may be more productive under low nitrogen situation. When you look at the level of production that they're getting relative to what we're getting, it's 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 not that attractive. Okay. Uh,
2: I, I suppose a, a big question here is just saying super talk uh, and just saying that the focus on on nitrogen really makes room for for methane from animals, but. What's your vision for a climate neutral dairy farm? Is that something that you see out there? And I know you've taken on the, the, the really hard challenge, but I suppose that, that the next phase of that challenge is, is that question of carbon neutral.
1: You see, I suppose the way I'd answer that question is if we were to approach carbon neutrality using existing technology, what we really have to look at is, is uh, offsetting on a large scale. Um nationally, so that would mean like if if we say in Salahead we're losing ten tons of carbon per hectare, we know that a an average area of forestry will will sequester five tons per hectare within a, t- a 40 year time frame say as as the, as the forestry is growing so it, it, if you were to say right now, put the gun to the head and said right you have to achieve carbon neutrality, what you're, what you're looking at is substantial multi-forestry. Um, and of course, this is well known. Um, and it's something like that would bias time until uh, new technologies come along. Like, I think there, there is the issue of, say, using um, methane inhibitors. I think probably they're 10 or 15 years away from what I'm hearing. And then there's the whole question of whether they'll be acceptable, but we can't preclude uh, the the idea of of, of um, new technology coming on and and I guess if I use the analogy earlier on about the big challenge for my generation was uh, food security that has largely been solved I suppose um, education contraception were big parts of that when some of those earlier analyses were being done those kind of things weren't really conceived um, I know I'm gone off the point now again um, okay. I think in in terms of, if we were to say, dealing with current technology, you'd say forestation, and to achieve that, and this is a point that, that's easily missed, we really need to intensify our agricultural production rather than extensify it. Like, we have a lot of extensive farms in the country that are taking up a lot of land. If we pay those farmers to extensify, it actually makes it more difficult to achieve carbon neutrality than... than uh, this idea of sustainable intensification, which people don't like that expression. And it's often been a kind of a green, uh, being accused of a greenwashing kind of an expression. But the reality is that's a misunderstanding of the concept. Like in Solahead, we can maintain our output, cut our emissions by 30%. Then the next step is to look at offsetting, which is something very difficult to do within the farm boundary. So you're looking at outside the farm boundary in terms of policy, national policy. And I hope I've answered the question clearly. Yeah, no, I think you've
2: done a good job. Uh, uh, a question there in terms of, of uh, methods of, of reed seeding and, and with the management you have there, are you able to uh, uh, achieve um, a, a good quality sward on an ongoing basis with, with potentially stitching in or do you need to actually do go for a, 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 a complete recede at at, at certain times.
1: Yeah, I, I, I suppose if we look at the work we did earlier on in in the reps type scenario, we used stitching in and oversewing and things like that, and um, they're they're a bit, as people would say, hit and miss. It depends a lot on the weather. Um, often it depends more on the management afterwards than than before, and getting that management right. It's it's a bit, if you're, and I think that's fine if you're dealing with a relatively extensive situation. But if you move into a more intensive, daring situation that we're dealing with at the moment, you really need to be looking at reseeding, integrating reseeding into the system. Um, and and I, I think, yeah, absolutely, reseeding no, no, no. Is, is the way forward. Um, in terms of reseeding, we disc, we, we burn off a glyphosate disc, and power harrow, it's straightforward. Okay. There's a couple of
2: questions in there in relation to water quality issues and, and loss of, of, of nitrate. Now I know solid is, is a fairly heavy side, so probably not a major amount of, of nitrate loss, but just in terms of a, a general comment uh, in terms of, of the, I suppose, the replacement of, of chemical
1: nitrogen with, with uh, plant produced nitrogen and what the impact it might have on water. Yeah, so for similar levels of productivity, if you look at the, the last pathways, when we put on nitrogen fertilizer, and uh, like I, I know that um, the idea is out there that we use nitrogen fertilizer with an efficiency of around twenty-five percent. But when we put on nitrogen fertilizer, we actually get most of that taken up by the sward, ninety percent. So it's it's only when you cows they graze that grass, put the nitrogen through the digestive system, and they deposit it out and done it in done with urine. That's 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 your last pathway. So urine patches are an important lost pathway. And whether you we use nitrogen fertilizer or whether we use uh, clover, like we're, we're supplying more or less the same amount of nitrogen, we're putting more or less the same amount of nitrogen through the cow. So the, the potential losses there from clover-based system are somewhat similar to the potential losses to water from uh, fertilized grass-based system. So the, the, there's so gives us a big advantage in terms of ammonia and greenhouse gases, not so much in terms of leaching. However, when you take nitrogen fertilizer out of the system, you then have to focus much more on optimal management of your slurry and your dirty water, which becomes a key component of your system. When you're, when you're forcing yourself into that type of scenario, they become much more important, need much better management. And I think we'll see the improvement in water quality uh, in that regard. Now, if, if we look at water quality... And and issues there, I suppose that you could always, again, point to nitrogen fertilizer being uh, a problem. Obviously, it's a contributing factor, but probably dirty water slurry management on farms is probably uh, an area where there needs to be more focus. And as I said, when you take nitrogen fertilizer out out of the system, that becomes... um, you know becomes much more important to manage those optimally and I think for us in Salahead really we, we, we need to like we, we'd like to see um maybe bringing in more improving our slurry storage improving our dirty water storage in, in in that we can use it more effectively to improve the productivity of our system. There's a number
2: of questions there in relation to what, what one person says going the next step and uh, going for an organic production system which obviously then will take out your your some of your p's and ks um, how challenging do you see that or is there is there
1: do you see scope there uh, or, or uh, relevance for, for your research i think it, it would be a mistake to kind of conflate what we're doing with with organic because okay so we're not we have a no nitrogen system but it is a long way from organic, and as the person said, P&K, uh, use of herbicides, these type of questions. Um, and I think the organic question is, is purely a marketing question. Once the markets are there, which they appear to be, and we get uh, processors to, to develop those markets, I think we would have a, a good potential relative to other countries to, to run organic systems. Um, because, as I said already, the climatic advantages we have in terms of grass growth in terms of being able to integrate legumes into that those grasswards i think uh, I think we'd have a competitive advantage it's It's amazing in a way that we haven't um, when you see the growth of organic dairy production particularly in other countries you'd say it's it's amazing that we haven't um, gone further but and I think it's a very interesting question, the whole organic question, but it's, it's, it's different to what we're doing. Like we're still running a fairly intensive system, um, without fertilizer nitrogen. That's, that's the key difference.
0: James, there's a quite a, f- uh, there's a few questions coming in around the, uh, how, how applicable what is what you're doing in Solahead to more northerly parts of the country? Um, you know, less, uh, intensive parts of the country well i suppose daring in other parts of the country as well but uh, question here uh, what's in this for farmers based in Cavan and Leitrim and Longford and Monaghan and those parts of the country uh, can can
1: lessons from solarhead be applied of course and um i know that that Hayes are now changing over their their farm to the clover based system and uh, we've been talking to them and um like when I go up to Belly Hayes, people often say the disadvantaged north, but I I I think Belly is a much nicer farm than than Salhead in terms of uh, wetness and the difficulties that we have. A month ago, we were splashing around the place. So, like Salhead is a farm, like it's a good capacity to grow grass, but it has limitations. Like a lot of other farms in terms of drainage and and things like that. And even with the drainage we put in, we we still have we still have problems. So I I I, I don't really see like we get. Variable soil conditions around the country, variable growing conditions. I think it'll be very interesting to see um, what happens up in valley and and how that how that works out. Mm-hmm. I'd be confident that they won't have any difficulty doing what we're doing.
2: Okay, there's was a, a, I a fairly practical question: Is is load a problem uh, in the animals as uh, has been observed over the years?
1: Yeah, so the, the, we, we, um, like we've been running clover systems for nearly 20 years and we had no cases of bloat until October last year. And we lost three cows over one weekend. So that was a big shock to the system. And I suppose um, what we put it down to all along was the fact that we don't have particularly high clover contents as of the nature of the soil that we have in Salahead. Partly put it down to the cows get conditioned to clover when they're on it all the time and um, aspects of our management like the high risk period is during the summer when we tend to late summer autumn when you have very high clover contents when we tend to build up higher covers which have a bit more fiber in them now the 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 case of bloat that we had um last october kind of beyond the the risk period if you know what i mean so maybe there's a bit of complacency it slipped in there but um i think weather conditions also influenced it so we've put in a um, system now for ensuring that there's bloat oil in the water because we just don't want to take the risk of that. Now there's a cost with that, but when we look at the potential savings, it's justifiable and also like one of the next areas to target from our point of view in terms of cutting emissions is the concentrate juice, which we've been leading to some extent to maintain our magnesium provide a grass tetany, but um, with this system now we can that that will allow, actually allow us to cut a concentrate input and cut our emissions accordingly so it's a, it's a kind of a thing that came out of the blue and w- could work for us
0: okay, Couple okay. Of questions. we're, we're uh, gonna have to cut it there i'm afraid okay, uh, okay. we are at uh half 10 and we would like to try and try and confine it to the hour because i understand people have other plans after half 10 but uh james thank you so much for an excellent presentation and uh, your candid responses to uh, the questions as well. Um, we could nearly do a an after an after show <laughs> with with questions and maybe look. We we, we continue to uh, to to keep an eye on what's going on in Salahhead and hopefully we'll see some uh, events happening in Salahhead Maybe there'll be an opportunity for our viewers to visit Salahhead in the near future when COVID uh, restrictions start to relax. Maybe. You have some some. Uh, that you're, I'm sure you're you're keen to get people in on the farm. Um,
1: but well, look- we we've groups visiting all the time, so well, we're, we're, we are open for business in that regard. Yeah, great. Good
0: to hear. You you could be sorry, James.
1: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. Look, I want to
0: thank our uh, production team, Yvonne Maher and Andy Boland, and, of course, our partners. And Pat, thanks so much for your help with all of the the questions. Lots of really good questions coming through, of course, to, to our viewers. Thanks for tuning in. You've been listening to the podcast version of the Chagisk Signpost Series, the weekly webinar that promotes and examines sustainability in Irish farming. Don't forget to join us live every Friday morning for our latest webinar. For more, visit chagisk.ie. And you can also rate, review, and subscribe to the Signpost series on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts from. I'm Mark Gibson, and thanks for listening.